Will you please stand and pray with me? Jesus, we pray that you would breathe out your spirit upon us yet again this Sunday. And may we receive from you power from God to live the new life of his kingdom now. Give us your grace through the preaching of your word. Soften our hearts to receive it and embolden our lives to live it. We give this over to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Maybe you caught it this past week, um, but Baylor University uh, beat Gonzaga for the uh, NCAA National Championship title in men's basketball. And um, I know many of you are probably in a workplace uh, where you might have had a, a, a Baylor fan uh, obnoxiously rubbing that in this week, or maybe more obnoxiously so, are those guys and those gals in your office or in your school that had Baylor winning it all on their brackets? You will never hear the end of it until next year, and then even years on, they'll be like, you remember 2021? When I was right and called it, what are they doing? They're proclaiming victory, whether it's the victory of Baylor or whether it's their own victory and choosing Baylor to win it all. And that's quite a natural thing to do. Victory naturally leads to proclamation. Well, maybe unless you win the lottery and then uh, that you don't want to like, let people know too much because uh, you don't want people coming out of the woodwork and to asking you for money. But in most cases, victory leads naturally to proclamation. And this is what makes our gospel reading all the more unusual. Look with me at John chapter 20, verse 19, one more time. It begins in this way. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week. So this is Easter Sunday in, gospel, in, in John's gospel. That very morning, Mary Magdalene found an empty tomb and encountered the risen Jesus in the garden. Jesus instructs her to go to the disciples and let them know. Victory naturally leads to proclamation. He says, let them know, but also tell them that in just a little while, I will be enthroned. I will ascend to the Father. I will receive my crown and sit down at the Father's right hand. Go and tell my disciples this, but also tell them that my God is their God. My Father is their Father. You see, Jesus won the victory over the devil Sin and death through his death and resurrection. And this victory naturally leads to proclamation. Mary, go and tell. This is exactly what Mary does. John records it in verse 18, the verse right before where our passage started. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. I mean, just picture it in your mind's eye. Mary, in, in all the emotions that you can imagine would be there, seeing someone raised from the dead, <laughs> and then seeing someone you have placed all your hopes and dreams in, who had died and now is finally back to life again, and you're running back to Jerusalem from outside of the city, and you are running up the stairs to this room, this upper room, and you come to where the disciples are. Can you just imagine for a moment, Mary, Peter, James, John, Bartholomew, I've seen the Lord. He's risen. He's alive. I mean, just the, just the emotion of it all. And then she, not only that, he wants me to tell you something. I don't want to forget. I don't want to forget. He's going to be, in just a little while, he's going to be ascending to the Father's right hand where he will sit and reign and rule over every square inch of planet Earth. And then he also said this. His God 
is your God. His Father is your Father. It's all true. Everything we have ever longed for for centuries as a people is true. God did finally show up and win. He finally overthrew our greatest oppressor, death and the devil. He won. He's reconciled us to God. We can finally call God again without any hint of shame, my God, my Father. You see, victory of any sort, but especially cosmic victory, especially universal victory over death, the devil, and sin naturally leads to proclamation. I mean, just imagine if we had one little pill that could cure death. Would we not want to tell every single person we came in contact with? We'd want to shout it out. Or if we had one thing that, no matter what the cancer, cured cancer, would we not want that? Would we not tell people about that achievement, about that victory? So, of course, when we have Jesus Christ rising from the dead, achieving cosmic victory, universal victory over death, the devil, and sin, that naturally leads to proclamation, or one would think. But as I mentioned just a moment ago, this natural natural inclination uh, to proclaim the news of victory is what makes this gospel reading so unusual. Look back with me at verse 19. On that evening of the first day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. And I think all of us, if we're paying attention to this narrative and like the emotions that this might be conjuring up in us are like, what? What person in your office would have won their bracket and just been like, folded it up, put it in the desk? I'm, you know, I'm a little fearful that I won. I don't want to, I don't want to rub that in too much. No. Jesus has just risen from the dead. They have just received this message from Mary, and they are doing what now? Locking doors and hiding in fear. This is not natural. (laughs) This is unnatural. Jesus has just won. The Jewish leaders did not defeat him. Roman power could not restrain him, and death could not hold him in the grave. He is alive and will shortly be enthroned in heaven over all things. That's victory worth proclaiming. And yet, this victory does not lead the disciples to joyful proclamation. Rather, we see them cowering in fear. The only way to make sense of this is that like Thomas in the next episode, the disciples would not believe Mary's report. They could not believe that Jesus won, that he was alive from the dead, and that he was ascending to the Father. That just did not register as something worthy of belief. They couldn't and they wouldn't believe it. And certainly not on Mary's word alone. They needed to see for themselves. And their actions in this narrative declare their unbelief, locking doors and hiding away. Hiding from fear of an already defeated foe. So what changed? I don't know if you caught the difference between our gospel reading and our reading from the book of Acts. What changed? What changed these men from cowering, fearful disciples in a locked room in our gospel reading to the bold, courageous apostles we see in our reading from Acts 3, who entered the temple, the most public place in all of Jerusalem, at one of the busiest times of prayer in the day, where there would be full of people there. They entered the temple, and they heal a lame man in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, the very man that the temple authorities had just killed. 
That's a huge difference between locking a door and hiding in fear to be in the midst of it all and saying, Jesus of Christ, be healed in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And then going on to explain what happened by proclaiming the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection and what that means to sinners. Judgment from God, but there's a way out. God's grace to you. What changed? And church, it's so important that we pay attention and recognize what transformed these disciples from fearful to courageous witnesses to the risen Lord Jesus. We need to clearly see this Eastertide what fundamentally altered and enlarged their imagination about what was possible in this world and in their lives given the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. You see, because tiny imaginations about the power of God at work in this world lead to actions that functionally deny the risen Jesus. Such as cowering in a locked room for fear of folks who have been defeated. But enlarged imaginations, enlarged imaginations about God's power, power that raises the dead, literally raises the dead. We believe that here. These enlarged imaginations lead to ordinary and extraordinary actions that proclaim the victory of Jesus, such as sharing our material goods with one another and with God, Acts 2. Radical generosity. Healing the lame in the name of Jesus. That's a rather extraordinary action. Acts 3, we heard that read. And then in response to both of these, boldly declaring how these actions, both ordinary and extraordinary, are made possible through the power of God that raises the dead at work in your life and in my life and in the life of this church together. I desire that for us, Christ Church, I desire that, that we would have an enlarged vision of what is possible in Winston-Salem through this church, through other churches in this city who can come together and say, we believe the power of God that raises the dead is at work. It's at work in our lives. It's at work in our ministries. It's at work in our homes, transforming us, enlarging our imaginations to become ambassadors who boldly proclaim Jesus. Victory naturally leads to proclamation. So what changed the disciples? What enlarged their imagination about what is possible in their lives through the power of God? Look at John chapter 20, verses 21 and 23, if you have a Bible. I'm going to read these verses again. And Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. When the the risen Jesus reveals himself to the disciples, they encounter the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they are drawn into the very mission of God on earth. This is what transforms cowering and fearful disciples into bold and courageous apostles. An encounter with the risen Jesus. An encounter with the triune God. These three little verses, John 20, 21 through 23, are so pregnant 
They encapsulate the whole story of God revealed in Scripture. And here's how Jesus in John 20, 21 through 23 tells the story of God and draws the disciples into it. Jesus begins by declaring that the disciples have been reconciled to himself and to God. Twice Jesus says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Jesus transforms what would have been a typical greeting of the day. Peace be with you into an efficacious pronouncement of reconciliation with himself and with God. In his first pronouncement of peace, Jesus reconciles the disciples to himself. And they needed reconciliation. For only just a few days earlier, these disciples who had been with him through thick and thin for three years ran away. They deserted the Lord that night in Gethsemane. Some of them even denied his name to others. They were in need of reconciliation with Jesus. And he reconciles them. Peace be with you. In the second pronouncement of peace, Jesus reconciles the disciples to the Father, the one who sent Jesus to rescue humanity and restore creation. The disciples had to be reconciled to Jesus in order for him to reconcile them to the Father. This is how it works. Early in John's gospel, Jesus declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, no one is reconciled to the Father except through me. Jesus made reconciliation possible through his sacrificial death on the cross. And, Jesus, and God accepted his sacrifice to reconcile his lost and rebellious creatures to himself by raising Jesus from the dead. There's not a greater stamp of approval that one could ever give in this world. God accepted Jesus by pouring out such power that lungs that no longer had air enlivened again. That a body that no longer was beginning to decompose now has life again. That's the power of God, the creation and redemption power of God at work in this world. Peace be with you. This pronouncement of reconciliation implies the entire story of redemption in the Old Testament. The disciples would have caught this. Their entire lives were defined by it. They were expecting the story to come to its climax. They knew that reconciliation with God meant that God's long-promised and awaited kingdom was finally here. You see, Scripture begins in Genesis 1 with God creating the heavens and the earth, His kingdom, and at the climax of His work, God creates humanity. He creates humanity in his image, composed of male and female. And he commissions humanity to continue his creational work by being fruitful, multiplying and filling the earth with the image of God who were to nurture and cultivate God's good creation and to do that into a place, make it into a place full of vitality and the fullness of life. Human flourishing, creational flourishing, abounding. And God fashions the first human, Adam, and breathes into him the spirit of life. And he becomes a living and fleshed soul. And God places Adam and his wife Eve in the midst of a well-watered and fruitful garden teeming with life. We could just imagine, it's idyllic. He gives them the freedom to eat from every tree in the garden except one, because eating from this one tree would bring death. It would bring death to them and upon God's good creation. However, Adam and Eve both rejected the freedom of God. 
and rebelled against his single command not to eat. And in that moment, they died. They were estranged and separated from God, the very source of life and power in this world. Their rebellion allowed death to establish a beachhead in the midst of and throughout God's good creation. They rejected God and broke their relationship with him. Nonetheless, he comes. He comes, pursuing them in the garden to punish? Yes. But ultimately, to restore, to bring reconciliation, so that Jesus one day could say, peace be with you. God turns to them and pursues them ultimately to make a way for them to be reconciled and for death to be destroyed. God lays out a rescue mission to reconcile humanity, destroy death, and restore humanity to their place and role as his image within his good creation. His mission will rest upon the seed of a woman, a son of Eve. And as scripture progresses, we follow the promise of this son who will reconcile us to God, destroy death, and restore us to our place in God's work and mission on earth. God renews his promise of this son to to folks like Abraham and David. And finally, one of God's angels announces to a poor virgin girl named Mary in a rural backwater town in Israel that she would give birth to this long-awaited son, a son of Eve a son of Abraham, a son of David. But ultimately, this one is the very son of God made flesh. This son of God, Jesus, brings all of human history and God's work in mission to a climax on the cross of Calvary, where all of God's wrath against him, I think we sang this, all of God's wrath against him and against human rebellion and sin is poured out on him. He bears that wrath of God unto death, dying in our place for our sin, paying our sin debt to God. He has reconciled us to the Father. Hear this morning from Jesus, peace be with you. And we know that Jesus can do this. We know that Jesus can effectually pronounce peace be with you between me Peace be with you between the Father because Jesus has been raised to new life. God has raised him from the dead. And the disciples, when they saw the risen Jesus in his very real and very human glorified body, the disciples knew what it meant. The resurrection was here. The turning of the ages was here. The kingdom of God was finally here in the risen Jesus. God's kingdom was here and he would make all things new. And just like us, we desire, don't we? Does anyone here not desire for all things to be made new? Who doesn't desire that? All that was lost would be restored, all that was broken would be repaired. Just as Father Ben preached last week, all sad things will come untrue. The devil, sin, and death have been defeated. That's a victory worthy of proclamation. The kingdom of God is finally here. God's story of redemption and his kingdom restoration that was told in the Old Testament finds its climax and fulfillment in Jesus' death and resurrection. 
At the climax of God's history of redemption, Jesus reconciles us to God the Father, and through his resurrection, he inaugurates his kingdom on earth. Jesus pronounces, peace be with you. And then he does something even more miraculous. He draws the disciples and he draws you and I into the very life and mission of God at work in this creation. He restores us to what was lost in the garden. He restores us to our place in God's economy, working as his image for his purposes in this world. Jesus says to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. You are sent ones, you are apostles. Having reconciled the disciples to himself and to God, Jesus, Jesus commissions them, drawing them into the very mission of God on earth to reconcile and restore. Having been drawn into the work and mission of God, the disciples no doubt thought, what are we going to do? How are we going to do it? Can you imagine that Jesus comes in a room and says, peace be with you. Now your mind's already blown. I'm, I have, I'm reconciled to God. And then he's like, guess what? I'm restoring you to what you've always were created to be. Workers for God and his kingdom. How are you going to do that? That would be my question. <laughs> I'm always, I mean, Ben, how do you do that, Ben? How do you do this? How do you respond to that? How? How? In what way do we do this? God's mission in the world as revealed in the Bible's grand story of redemption determines exactly the what and the how of the disciples' mission and our mission here in Winston-Salem. If the mission comes unhinged from the story of God told in Scripture, then it becomes a wax nose that can be manipulated in any way. And that happens all the time. Some of you are here because that's happened in other churches. May God keep that from happening here. This story of God that finds its climax in the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus becomes for the disciples and for us the defining story of our lives. Often, you know, in, I know some people, Amy, it's not against you, Enneagram, you know, there's other personality things out there. Often your life is defined by your childhood traumas, Right? What Jesus does, he says, childhood traumas no longer define you. The story of God's redemption told throughout Scripture is the main thing that defines our lives. It defines the life of the church. It defines the life of each follower of Jesus. This true story is the story that gives all of our little stories meaning and purpose. So how could these fearful disciples, in only a short matter of time, emerge from this locked room and walk to the temple? And proclaim in word and deed that Jesus won. He's alive. And that the new life of God's kingdom was finally here. They saw themselves as drawn into and participating in the very mission of God. That was only enabled by Jesus reconciling them to the Father. And they had a model. Jesus boldly declared, on mission from God, declared the good news of God's kingdom. Did it get him killed? Sure. But he did not remain dead, and that makes all the difference. That is what transforms fear into courage, cowering silence into bold proclamation, is that there is nothing anyone could ever do to you worse than death, and death has been undone. 
What are we afraid of? God's power has been poured out on you. Each one of you. I don't want you to answer out loud, but you're more than welcome to. Have you repented of your sins and turned to Jesus Christ for salvation alone? Have you done that? Have you been baptized? Have you been plunged in the waters of baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? But I want to let you know something. Don't ever forget this. Remind yourself when you come into this church with the holy water fonts or whatever you need to do, remind yourself that you now have the Spirit of God, the very power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is at work and indwelling in you. The new creation is here, Paul says. You are powerful. Not because you're powerful, but because he's powerful. You might be thinking, well, I just don't have any skills. I don't have any gifts. My faith isn't strong enough. Well, let me tell you this. The disciples would have been the last people chosen on the playground for kickball. (laughs) Nobody wanted them. I mean, they were class A losers. Nobody wanted them. And you know what? Nobody really wants you either. You know, that's good company to be in. We're all a bunch of people getting picked last for kickball. And that's okay. It's good for us to recognize that about ourselves, that we lack what we need to do what God calls us. But thanks be to God, he gives us his spirit. He can take, he takes a ragtag group of folks, the disciples and his church that he's assembled from the poor, from the rich, from everyone in between, and he makes a group of people who defy odds because of his power. Jesus breathed on his disciples and he remade them. No longer are they losers, no longer are they alienated, but no, they are now the best kickball players. Just as God breathed into Adam his breath, the spirit of life, and made him alive, Jesus commissions his disciples and breathes on them. And they receive the Holy Spirit. They receive power from on high to live the new life of God's kingdom in advance of it fully being here. They have become reborn. You have become reborn through the waters of baptism, through faith and repentance. You have been made new. You have received the power of resurrection. That's what transforms fearful disciples into courageous apostles, an encounter with the triune God in the person of the risen Jesus. That results in reconciliation with God. That is what brings about being commissioned to live out God's work here in this world. And it results in receiving the Holy Spirit from on high to empower you throughout your life to live the life of the new creation, whether it's an ordinary day-to-day relationship stuff with your wife or your children or your best friends or at your work, or whether it's extraordinary things that God does in our midst through prayer, the healings. How do you proclaim the victory of God, the victory of the risen Jesus? Well, I'm not going to tell you. We're going to wait till the summer. We're going to do a series through the book of Acts, and we're going to do a deep dive into how that happens. But I can tell you right now, 
It starts with you submitting yourself to Jesus and being transformed by his spirit. Open yourself to the power of God that dwells within you. Don't be fearful. Don't cower away. But proclaim the victory of Jesus. It's far more worthy to talk about than Baylor. I'm just saying. May God help us to do that. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.